You can turn with me to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to get there eventually. I actually want to begin in 1 Timothy 3, but no need for you to turn there. I just want to read one single verse. And here it is again. This is Paul's first epistle to Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If, any, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Uh, the saying is trustworthy. Paul uses it five times in the pastoral epistles. And he is very intentional as he uses it. He employs it to grab our attention. I am about to say something significant. I am about to point to something of great concern. A matter of great interest. And so this saying is trustworthy. And in this context, he is speaking, of course, of elders. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Uh, The elders here at uh, Grace Community Church, uh, we have been praying and discussing adding elders for well over a year. I've lost track of how long we've had that discussion off and on. And we've been praying about it. And I want to uh, submit a couple of names to the elders of Grace, the members of Grace Community Church this morning. Uh, Gary Phillips, who we all know, and Brian Gaines. We have approached both of them about joining us as elders. We have also approached uh, Joel Kinberg and asked him to sit with us as elders, not becoming an elder here at Grace Community Church, but sit with us. Uh, as they prepare to launch the church plant in Weatherford so that he can be with us, maybe learn something as he meets with us, and certainly better prepare and equip him for that day when he's an elder at the church plant in in Weatherford. Our uh, practice here at Grace is spelled out. It's very clear in our constitution and bylaws. Uh, We raised this with Joel, Brian, and Gary back at the end of November, early December, and I gave them an assignment. It was actually three assignments. You can imagine what that entailed. A lot of reading and listening and writing on their part, and followed up with them recently. And um, they've expressed an interest and spoken with their wives. And so I'm submitting these names to the congregation now because in accordance with our bylaws, we're to take 30 days. And it's wise that we do. And if you're a member here at Grace Community Church, you now have a tremendous responsibility. Your responsibility is to read 1 Timothy 3. It is to read Titus 1. And it is to consider these men. And if there is a problem, you're to let us know. If uh, we've been misguided, you're to express it. We're looking for confirmation from the congregation that these men are indeed already doing the work of an elder. All we're doing is confirming it. And that uh, we want to recognize them and embrace them as shepherds here at Grace Community Church. So again, that's Gary Phillips, Brian Gaines becoming elders, Joel sitting with us as he prepares eventually to become an elder at the church plant in Weatherford. So be praying for them. Consider these passages. And over the next 30 days, we'll be committing it, continuing to commit it to the Lord. And uh, the practice, our policy is very simple. At the end of those 30 days, we simply confirm the names then to the congregation, and it then becomes practice. And so I leave that with you. 
And leave with you again that great statement in 1 Timothy 3. This is a faithful saying. This is a trustworthy saying. This is significant. And we do not take it lightly here at Grace Community Church. So again, I leave it with you. And I beg of you to be in prayer over the next month or so. Romans chapter 6. You're there. You found it. What's going on in this text of Scripture? When we began to study it a couple of Sundays ago, I asked you to use your sanctified imagination and to picture the Apostle Paul who penned this epistle uh, walking down the street, the uh, street of the city of Corinth. That is likely where he was when he wrote this letter to the church gathered in the city of Rome. And so we imagine Paul walking, strolling leisurely down the street of the city of Corinth, and suddenly Paul spies a man walking toward him. And this man is walking quickly. This man has his eyes trained, fixed upon Paul. And as he draws near, he speaks out, Paul, I want to have a word with you. Uh, Paul, here is my concern in a nutshell. I have heard, I have read, I understand perfectly all that you have said concerning the doctrine of justification. I understand that the just shall live by faith. I understand that justification is by grace alone, meaning it is a gift of God. I understand that justification is through faith alone, meaning we simply receive it. We contribute nothing to it. Our works play no part in it. And I understand that justification is in Christ alone, that I simply believe. I believe in the Lord Jesus. I made one with him. Therefore, my sin is reckoned to him. He pays the penalty in full upon Calvary's cross. And his obedience and righteousness are reckoned to me, whereby I now stand just, righteous in the sight of God. I understand it, Paul. It sounds wonderful. It looks good on paper. Here's my concern. It's going to lead to loose living. It's going to lead to moral laxity. I can see already what's going to happen, Paul. People are going to latch onto this idea that all we have to do is believe. All we have to do is say a prayer. All we have to do is walk the aisle. All we have to do is fill in some card or say the sinner's prayer or something. All we have to do is believe. And our works have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter how we live. Well, some people are going to latch on to that. And Paul, they're just going to live however they please. They're just going to continue on sinning. Paul, all your talk of grace, all this talk of being justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it's going to encourage sin. Paul is about to answer. He has his mouth half opened. All of a sudden, he hears someone else calling, Paul. And he turns around, and there's another man crossing the street. This man's eyes are all red and glazed over. His nose is bright red. He has a woman hanging on his arm who isn't his wife. And he draws near. Paul, I've heard what you've said about justification, and I love it. I love this talk of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I love this talk of the fact that it doesn't matter what we do. I love your emphasis on the fact that our works do not contribute one way. It is not my righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. All I have to do is believe. I've believed. And there he is in his drunken stupor with a woman on his arm who isn't even his wife. The first man, Paul catches his eye. And the first man raises his eyebrows as if to say, Paul, that's exactly what I'm talking about. How does Paul respond? Romans chapter 6, the first 14 verses. That is his response. What does he do? 
He asks the question in the very first verse. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Is that what you're to conclude from what I've been saying? Is that what you are to take from the doctrine of justification? That's his question. He gives the answer in the second verse. By no means. In other words, God forbid. In other words, what an absurd conclusion. For you to conclude from what I've been saying, that justification is a free license and an excuse to sin. What an utter absurdity. And then he presents his argument beginning in verse 3 through to verse 10. His argument is straightforward. Look, when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you became one with him. Because you are one with him, that has significance for the penalty of your sin. The penalty of your sin is death, but you are now united with Christ. Therefore, you are united with him in his death, his crucifixion, and you are united with him in his resurrection. Therefore, you have paid the penalty for your sin. You haven't paid it in yourself. You've paid it by virtue of the fact that you are one with the Lord Jesus who has paid the penalty for your sin on your behalf. You see, your union with Christ has tremendous implications for the penalty of sin. Equally true. Your union with Christ has tremendous significance for the power of sin. You were born a slave to sin. You were born under its dominion. But the Lord Jesus has broken that power. You are one with him. Therefore, you are one with him in his death and his resurrection. That means, Christian, there is a day coming when Christ will glorify you. There is a day coming when your sin will be completely eradicated. There is a day coming when the power of his crucifixion and resurrection will come to bear fully upon your life and you will be perfected in body and soul in perfect likeness and conformity to the Lord Jesus. The day is coming. It's called glorification. But understand this. It's already been established. It's already been inaugurated. You're already one with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is his appeal. Those are the truths he expounds in verses 3 through 10. And then he introduces the imperative, beginning in verse 11 through to verse 13. And the imperative consists of three commands. Here they are. Know who you are. Given what I have said in verses 3 through 10, know who you are in Christ. Understand your identity in him. Here's imperative number two. Be who you are. Act it out now in life. And here is imperative number three. Guard who you are. All Paul is saying is simply this. You're one with Christ in God's reckoning. Now act like it. He gives a conclusion in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law. You're no longer in Adam under law. You're under grace. You now have something you never had before. By grace, you have a new identity in the Lord Jesus. And that is all the motive you need to live a life of obedience, to live a life of righteousness. That is Paul's answer. He looks at that first man as they're there having this conversation on the street. And he turns to the second man. And they're both kind of in stunned silence. They're taking a moment just to compute all this. And the first man has a very inquisitive look on his face. He's processing it all. And he's just, the mind's going like 90 as he works through all of this and the implications. And then suddenly the second man speaks up and his eyes are kind of bug-eyed. And uh, 
He says, Paul, Paul, I, I listened to what you've just said. And, uh, you know, Paul, out of everything you just said, and I think I understood it, but what really, what really grabbed my attention was that last statement. Uh, I am not under law, but under grace. You see, Paul, that's all I'm saying. And you just said it yourself. I'm not under law, meaning I have no obligation to obey it. The law makes no requirement of me. Obedience isn't necessary. I'm under grace. It's all of grace. How I live doesn't matter. What I do does not factor into it. Paul, you've just said it yourself. You've just declared it. We're not under law. We are under grace. Therefore, I am free to live however I please. How does Paul respond? We hear his response beginning in verse 15. And it goes all the way through to the end of the chapter. And I invite you to hear it now. The words of the Apostle Paul penned beginning the 15th verse. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law? You see how it flows out of the 14th verse. Not under law, but under grace. By no means do you not know. That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first thing I want you to notice is the question. Remember his question back in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now he knows his answer is going to lead to this second question in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? I have lost count. I'm not sure I ever kept count. But if I were keeping count at one time, I'm sure I would have lost count by now. The number of occasions I have spoken with someone, interacted with someone, and dared to raise blatant sin in their lives, to have them dismiss me as a legalist. 
I have lost count. The number of times, let me repeat it. I've had a conversation, male, female, young, old. And the topic, we've got around to the topic of sin. And we've got around specifically to a sin in his life, her life. I've dared to raise it. I've dared to call it what it is. And the response I have heard, the reaction I have received, the words not always expressed as follows, but these words certainly capture the sentiment. Uh, You are a legalist. I am not under law. I am under grace. God is all grace. God is all forgiving. Yes, that might be wrong. Yes, that might be unacceptable. But isn't that what grace grace is for? God isn't keeping record. God isn't keeping track. He's forgiven me. He does forgive me. He will forgive me. Oh, how many times I have spoken with people who believe, as Christians, there aren't any rules. I've heard it so many times. I, I, I have to bite my tongue every time I hear it. You're a legalist. Or even, you're a raving legalist. You're a raving legalist. There aren't any rules as Christians. We aren't under law. You ever heard that? Well, the number of times I've heard this, there are rules, but we don't need to obey them. Those rules only apply to unbelievers, and their purpose is to generate conviction for sin, which is true. But then they take it a step further. Now that I'm a Christian, those rules still exist, but they no longer have anything to do with me. They no longer apply to me. Or the number of times I've heard people say, yes, there, there are rules, but I am free to determine those rules because the Spirit of God now lives within. Oh, and here comes the mystic. The Spirit of God will lead me into the truth. The Spirit of God will show me what's right, what's wrong. My conscience doesn't bother me about that. It does bother me about this. So I have become a law unto myself. Oh, again, I'm going to repeat it. The number of times I've had that conversation. And they are all encapsulated in this question in the 15th verse. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? The law has nothing to do with me. It doesn't matter how I live now as a Christian. It doesn't matter what sin I engage in. It doesn't matter what kind of testimony I have before the world because I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What is Paul's response? Notice, secondly, his answer right there at the end of verse 15. By no means. Which is what? God forbid, which is a nice way of saying what? I've never heard anything so ridiculous in my life. That is what Paul is saying. I mean, that is just an absolute absurdity. How could you ever think such a thing? How could you ever conclude such a thing? How could you ever derive such a thing from what I have been articulating in this epistle concerning union with Christ and what that means for our justification before God? By no means, God forbid. And then he presents his argument. His argument beginning in verse 16. First thing I want you to notice are the first four words. Do you not know? In other words, he is presuming what? That the individual who asks that question in verse 15 is actually what? I'm going to use a word that might make us twinge a little bit. 
But that person is actually what? Ignorant. The person is ignorant. Do you not know? And he begins to inform this individual, this ignorant individual, as to the truth, as to the reality. And he emphasizes six points. Six points. And I'm going to give them to you by way of question. Here's the first. And as we work our way through these six, one, two, three, four, five, six, and we keep in mind the question, the answer, and now his argument, and you bring these six together, you'll hear Paul's cry ringing throughout by no means. Here's the first question. Do you not know you are a slave? That's his first point. Do you not know that you are a slave? 16th verse. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so Paul's point right now is that every single human being ever lived, living now, ever will live, is a slave. Look at what he says in the 19th verse. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And so this idea of slavery, you know, it's not really what I, I, I want to use to explain this, but I recognize human limitations. I recognize that we're going to have a difficult time getting our minds around this. And so this is pretty much the best example, best analogy I can come up with is slavery. What that must have meant in that day of age. He's writing to whom? The city, the, the city, the church in the city of Rome. I can't remember the exact number, but more than half of the people living in the Roman Empire were slaves. These people knew slavery. Undoubtedly, a number of people to whom Paul is writing, members in this church, at this church at Rome, they themselves were physical slaves. And so this is something very real to them. This is something very tangible. And so he's saying, look, I want you to look out the window. I want you just to look around you. I want you just to think of your own status in society. We all understand slavery. And we all understand what slavery means. It implies what? You have no control. You have no power. You are doing what? You are doing, you are performing the will of someone else. And so this is what I want you to grasp. That when it comes to life, you are a slave. There are only two masters. You are a slave of one or you are a slave of the either. And so what's the first slave master? Sin. He identifies it in verse 16 in the middle. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin. There's the first taskmaster, slave master, sin. He repeats it in verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. He repeats it again in verse 20. When you were slaves of sin. So there's master number one. Put him right here. Sin. But there's a second master. He uses three different words to describe him. This first word is obedience. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience. So there's the second master, obedience. He uses a second word. Verse 18. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He uses a third word, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves 
of God. Two masters. That's it. Sin. Master number one, right here. Master number two, pick any of the words you like. Obedience, righteousness, God. His point is this. You are a slave and you are serving one or the other. That's all there is to it. Either sin owns you and you are at its beck and call. Or God, righteousness, obedience owns you. And that is what you or whom you serve. The second point he makes is this in the 17th verse. Do you not know that you were a slave to sin? Now remember, he is writing to Christians. And so he is asking them to remember, reflect on the fact that at one time they were slaves to sin. 17th verse. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. And so he is reminding them of what they were by birth. He is reminding them of what they were when they came into this world. They were by nature, from the moment of their birth, their natural birth, their physical birth, they were slaves of sin. Sin was their master. We see that clearly evident back in the third chapter where Paul says that no one seeks after God. No one understands God. There is none who does good. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so that was our predicament at one time. We're now Christians. But at one time we were slaves of sin. The third point he makes is this. Do you not know that now you are a slave to righteousness? 17th verse. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of of righteousness. You are no longer a slave of sin. Do you not know that you are now a slave of obedience? You are now a slave of righteousness. You are now a slave of God. What is this? This is the new birth. How did this happen? He explains it clearly in the 17th verse. He points us heavenward with that opening statement. Thanks be to God, God did something. God did something I could never do. What happened? That you who were once slaves of sin, you were a slave to it, you were at its control. What has happened? You have become obedient from the heart. There has been an inner transformation that now manifests itself in obedience to what? The standard of teaching, the gospel. Now notice this next phrase, do not miss it. To which you were committed. The subject is us. The verb is in the passive voice. The standard of teaching to which we were committed. Who committed us to it? God. Thanks be to God. That God acted sovereignly in our lives. 
Thanks be to God that in his eternal counsels he chose us before the foundation of the world. Thanks be to God that there was a moment in time, that effectual call, where the light went on and we saw ourselves as sinners, slaves to sin. We beheld the glories of Christ in the gospel. We understood what was being offered us in that standard of teaching the gospel. And we were committed to it. Not us committing ourselves, but God himself who committed us to it, transforming us, whereby we were no longer slaves of sin, but we became slaves of righteousness. The fifth truth, fourth truth is this. Do you not know in the 18th verse that now you are free from sin? Do you not know it, Christian? You are free from sin. 18th verse. And having been set free from sin. Liberation. This isn't liberation thought theology. I'm not talking about liberation from economic injustice. I'm not talking about liberation from some sort of political or social oppression. I'm talking about liberation from slavery to sin. I'm talking about the greatest release and liberation from our greatest enemy, that which plagues us ourselves, our love of self, our innate idolatry, and our rebellion against God. He has set us free. He has liberated us from that slavery, that slavery to sin. How has he done so? Two ways. He has liberated us from the penalty of our sin. That is justification. Again, celebrate it with me. Yes, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. alone. That is our standing in the Lord Jesus, whereby the penalty of our sin is paid in full through his death his resurrection, his obedience now imputed to us, liberated from the penalty of sin. But equally true and equally wonderful, we have been liberated from the power of sin. Oh, yes, we know we're awaiting glorification. We know we are awaiting that final eradication of the flesh when we will be perfect in body and soul. We will be like him for we shall see him as he is. But understand this, it has already been established. It has already been inaugurated. We are already one with him, whereby the life we now live, we live in Christ Jesus. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, we are free from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. His fifth, question, his fifth point is this, by way of question. Do you not know? Do you not know that you must present your members as slaves to righteousness? And so if, if you're really getting, if you understand the first four points, do you not know that you are a slave? Do you not know that you were a slave to sin? Do you not know that you are now a slave to righteousness? Do you not know that in Christ you are now free from sin? If you get these four, it's beginning to compute, and you grasp your identity in the Lord Jesus, then fifthly, do you not know that you must present your members as slaves to righteousness? The 19th verse. 
I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just, just as you once presented your members, all the members of your body, name them, all the members of your soul, all your faculties, all that constitutes humanity, body and soul, just as you once presented all that you are as a human being, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, in light of your identity in the Lord Jesus, present your members, all that you are, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. It's beautiful. As we read it, I admit It can sound a little abstract, can't it? So let me make it very concrete. Earlier this week, I was was jotting down different examples of what this means. Different examples of what this looks like. And let me share six or seven with you. What it means, because of our identity in Christ, to present our members, body and soul, as slaves to righteousness. Here's concrete example number one. Someone makes you look bad. All right, you fill in the blanks, the details, that's up to you. Someone makes you look bad. Maybe one of your children embarrasses you publicly. Somebody, someone makes you look bad. At that moment, you have a choice. Will you offer yourself to sin? Or will you offer yourself to God? Will you do what you want, what lurks deep within to strike out in terms of revenge, give as good as you got? Or will you know who you are in Christ Jesus and act accordingly? Concrete example number two. Let's imagine you're sitting alone at the computer And the temptation is there to look at things you should not be looking at. I don't need to fill in the blanks. There you are. At that moment, you have, you have a choice to make. Will you offer yourself to sin or will you offer yourself to God? Will you seek to satisfy that desire, that lust, whatever whatever poison well it came out of? Or will you embrace and consider who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ and act like it? Who will be your master at that moment? Concrete example number three. Tax time coming up. Your taxes seem too high. And you received by payment this past year uh, a lot of cash. And there's absolutely no way the government will ever know. There's no printed record. There's nothing in writing. Uh, What will it matter if I don't claim that as personal income? At that moment, you face a choice. Will you offer yourself to sin? Or will you offer yourself to God? Will you give vent and expression to your own greed, what it is you want? Or will you consider who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you know who you are in Christ? Will you be as you are in Christ? Will you guard who you are in Christ? Will you present yourself to Christ, God, righteousness, obedience, as your master? Fourth example. 
Your day has not gone as planned. Well, boy, it's back it up. Your night did not go as planned. Three kids, three boys. Boy number one decided it was his turn to make a fuss at two o'clock. Boy number two decided it was his turn at three o'clock. Boy number three decided it was his turn at four or five o'clock. I've been up the whole night. This day is not going as planned. The car has now broken down. I've got stuff coming at me from every direction. At that moment, Christian, you face a choice. You face a choice. You must choose at that moment. Will you offer yourself to sin? Or will you offer yourself to God? Will you give, will you, will you give expression to your desire to throw a self-pity party for yourself? To get all frustrated. To get all vexed. And to lash out in anger. Or will you present yourself to your master as a slave to righteousness, a slave to obedience, a slave to God? A couple more examples. Your spouse has been unkind. That was a sharp, pointed thing she said, he said. At that moment, guess what? You know where I'm going with this. You face a choice. You must choose. Will you offer yourself to sin? Or will you offer yourself to God, righteousness, obedience? What will you do? Will you lash out? Will you pout? Will you just embrace this spirit of bitterness? Or will you remember who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you remember that you are one with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection? Will you choose to live accordingly? And will you offer yourself to your master, God? Another example. Someone of the opposite sex shows a little too much undue familiarity toward you. A text message that that person should never have sent. An email that should never have crossed his or her mind to send to you. At that moment, my friend, you must make a choice. Two masters. Will you present yourself? Will you present your members to sin? Or will you present your members to God? What is it that will compel you at that moment? Will it be your desire for attention or some sort of emotional attachment or something far worse? Or will you remember who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ? And will you present your members to your master? Obedience, righteousness, God. That is the fifth question. Paul's fifth point. Do you not know that you must present your members as slaves to righteousness? And his sixth and final point is this. Do you not know the benefit of slavery to God? The fruit, the wonderful fruit of slavery to God in comparison to the fruit of slavery to sin. Do you not see the difference? Do you not comprehend where these two roads are leading? Do you not see the end game? Where this is going? Do you not see it, says Paul? That there are these two roads, there are these two masters. The first, when we present ourselves to sin, what is the result? Look at what he says in the 20th verse. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Oh, the end of those things 
is death. There's a twofold result there. The first is immediate. When we give ourselves, we present our members, even as Christians, when we present our members to sin, to our old master, whose power has been broken. We weren't obliged to, but when we do it, and we still do occasionally, uh, we bear immediate consequences. We bear immediate fruit. Uh, There is brokenness. And that brokenness comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes and forms. Again, I was meditating on this this past week. Let me make this very concrete. I don't want this to be abstract. I want you to be able to walk out of here and see how real and vivid this must be in your life as a Christian. Here we go. Five examples of this brokenness that when we present our members to that old master sin, how it breaks us and how it leads us into this negative result. Here we go. If you choose when faced with sin, if you choose to love approval more than God, if you choose to love man's approval more than God, you will become enslaved to it again. And what will be the result? The result will be a perpetual existence of self-pity. Nothing worse than an individual walking around throwing a perpetual pity party for himself or herself. Second example. If when you face sin and temptation, you choose to love success, ambition more than God, you will re-enslave yourself to it. And what will the fruit be? Discontentment. How many people going through life completely discontent, agitated? Third example. If you choose at that moment to love pleasure, sensual, physical, whatever the nature of the pleasure more than God, you re-enslave yourself to it and the result will be shame. Perpetual shame, a perpetual cloud. If you choose to love wealth, possessions, more than God, you will re-enslave yourself to it and the result, the brokenness, will be a life of greed and all that accompanies it. A couple more examples. If at that moment you choose to love comfort and ease more than God, you will enslave yourself to it and your brokenness will be perpetual worry and anxiety. One more example. If you choose to love control or power more than God, at that moment, you will re-enslave yourself to it and it will show itself in anger and impatience. That is the first result of presenting our members to sin. The second result is what? Eternal death. Damnation. What is the fruit, though? What is the fruit of presenting our members to God? Obedience, righteousness. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That's holiness. A closer walk with God. And its end. Where will it result? eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord paul's finished his answer Uh, he's standing there on the street right do you remember him we left him with two men and there's that first man there all concerned about the theological implications the intricacies of what paul has been saying about the doctrine of justification and union with christ And there's living proof. A second man was completely misunderstood, completely misapplied. 
is living however he pleases and yet claims to believe in the Lord Jesus. Claims to be one with Christ. Claims to be justified. Thinks it's a wonderful thing, but is basically living and doing whatever he wants. And there they stand. Paul has made his point. He has given his answers. The first man, the penny has really dropped. Paul, I understand it now. I get it. I was a little confused in my thinking. I was only looking at this from one angle. But I see now that the starting point is union with Christ. The gospel is union with Christ. And when I become one with Christ, there are two blessings. Two inseparable blessings. Can't separate them. The first is justification. He deals with the penalty of my sin. The second is sanctification. He deals with the power of my sin. And when I'm one with Christ, I enter into the realm of both. I get it. That first man, Paul turns his attention to him, kind of speechless. And Paul just reiterates something he has said in this text by way of, by way of questions. He said to him, look, my friend, look, let, let's, just, let's just cut right to the chase. Here we go. Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know who you are in Christ? then my friend, act like it. Be who you are. Now that man's response, I'm not going to say, could go in one of two directions. He could say, yeah, Paul, my conscience is kind of bothering me here. I understand who I am in Christ and what that means now for the power of sin. And I need to present myself, my members, all that I am, body and soul to my new master, God, righteousness, obedience. Well, then the gospel has done its work, hasn't it? But if the man's response is this, and I've heard it occasionally, and nothing, very few things frighten me more. His response is this, well, I don't really care. I don't really get it. Let's talk about this again maybe six months from now. Well, I do get it, but I'm living however I please right now, and maybe I'll reconsider two years from now. Do you know what you've got, my friends? You've got an unbeliever. You have an unbeliever. If someone, a true Christian who is in Christ, hears those three commandments, know who you are, be who you are, and guard who you are, a Christian cannot hear that and not be moved. A person who professes faith in Christ hears those three commandments, but it is water off a duck's back. I tell you right now, I declare it right now, you are dealing with a non-Christian, an unbeliever. Oh, to be in Christ is to be one with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that has implications for the power of sin. It has implications for the penalty of sin. Let me sum it up in five statements. Here they are, quickly. Conversion involves a transformation. Ephesians 5.8. We were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Darkness, light. 1 John 3, 14, we have passed out of death into life. Death, life, conversion involves a transformation. A.W. Tozer declared decades ago, plain horse sense ought to tell us that anything that makes no change in the man who professes it makes no difference to God either. Can you hear those three commands without responding, my friend? And do you dare claim the name of Christ? You are sorely mistaken. Sorely mistaken. Know who you are. Be who you are. Guard who you are. Conversion is a transformation. Secondly, conversion leads to thanksgiving. We see that in our text. I give thanks to God. 
Because Paul understands what he was by birth, a slave to sin. He understands what he now is by God's grace, a slave to righteousness and obedience. This is the soul's expression of freedom, gratitude. Third lesson is this. Conversion creates an appetite for God's word. He says that in the 17th verse of our text. That God had committed him to that standard of teaching, committed him to the word, whereby the word became his anchor in life. His word became his compass. Do you love the word or the world? It's a difference in one letter, but it is a difference between heaven and hell. Fourth point is this. Conversion results in freedom. I've heard it. I've heard a lot of things, evidently, from what I've been saying this morning. I've heard it many times. Young people in particular, I just want to be free. Anybody else ever heard that one from a young person? Young man, young woman. Uh, you know, I know I was, raised in the, I was raised in a Christian home, raised in the church. I understand it all. I believe I was baptized, but I just, I just want to be free now. Nonsense. There is no such thing as freedom outside of God. Matter of fact, let me reword it. Let me reword it. Maybe this really gets your attention. Freedom, the only freedom going, my friends, is slavery to God. Now, I hope that really gets you. The only freedom going is slavery to God, conformity to his good and perfect will for us. Do we have to obey God's commandments to be saved? No. To be free? Yes. The fifth and final lesson is this. Conversion means we can please God. When we are made right with God in Christ Jesus, our obedience pleases him. Not in terms of merit. Understand me. Not in terms of merit. Definitely not outside of Christ. Nothing pleases God outside of Christ. But in Christ, renewed by the Spirit of God, our obedience that we offer up to him is pleasing to him. He does not scoff at our attempts to obey him. He does not criticize our attempts to follow his word. What parent scoffs at his child's attempt to make breakfast? However terrible it might turn out. What parent criticizes his child's attempt to draw a picture, even though he or she may be clueless as to what it exactly is? Our father does not deal harshly with us as believers. And in Christ Jesus, when we obey in the small and in the great, it is pleasing in his sight. You know, you want to sum up Romans 6? That's it. Three sermons on Romans 6. We move on to chapter 7 next week. Here it is. Romans 6 summed up in a hymn which we sang earlier in the opening. With this, I will conclude. Here it is. And listen carefully to these words. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed. Now listen carefully, very carefully. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath, that's justification. And make me pure, that's sanctification. And that is the message of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. May the Spirit of God bless it to each man, woman, boy, child gathered here this day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you again for your word. Praise you for uh, the gospel. Praise you for all that it declares concerning the Lord Jesus and the righteousness we find in him, the perfect standing which we find in him and that grace and mercy and loving kindness 
which are poured out to us through him. We pray, our Father, now for divine illumination. We have heard your word. We pray that you would impress it upon our minds and upon our hearts for your glory, the furtherance of your kingdom. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen.